Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, verses 113 to 120. Psalm 119, verse 113. We will see here a contrast between love and hate. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word, that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me, that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is falsehood. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Our Father in heaven, we know that we ought to love you. We ought to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. We, Father, pray that you will show us from your word to do so, and as well, in contrast, to hate all that you hate and to reject the world, the flesh, and the devil in every way, in every area of our life. Draw us near to you in the right way, because we draw near in the name of Christ, and we pray now that your Holy Spirit will teach us your word and convince us of its truthfulness, that we might obey it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in this passage, we have a clear contrast between what David says about himself, about what he loves and what he hates. As we know, David is not just meaning himself. Though he is a man of God, a righteous man, a believer in the gospel of Christ, he's not just describing what he himself should do or is doing, but he's describing what we should do. And we will see more evidence of this when we compare this passage to other scriptures, that what David's saying about what he loves, the law of God, the word of God, and by implication and ultimate destiny, that is ultimate goal, to love God himself, by means of this word, we should do the same. But at the same time, David has temptations and afflictions, persecutions going on all around him. That is, the world, the flesh, and the devil militate against him. They are seeking warfare against him, but he needs to resist all of that. And when he resists all of that, he in his mind, in his heart, in his soul, arouses hatred. He arouses hatred in order to withstand the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is good and this is right for the man of God to be this way. Anybody who claims the name of Christ must understand what he should love, who he should love, what he should hate, and even who he should hate. It's both a matter of what and who. There are things to hate, but also people to hate. This is the truth of the Bible. And we will see that it's not just David praying like this and David wanting it for himself, but he's saying this as a model for everybody else to follow, just as he follows faithfully before God. He is, in other words, David is not sinning when he expresses hatred. He's not sinning even when he's expressing fear of God. It says in verse 120, My flesh trembles for fear of you. He's not sinning in that way. He's expressing a right and true response to the truth of God, to the knowledge of God, to the character of God. Let's see that for ourselves. Verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. He says, I hate those who are double-minded. Your Bible may say those who have double thoughts or those who are double-tongued in some way like that. I believe that there is room to consider that he actually hates the people, not just the thoughts of the people or not just his own double thoughts, not only his own double-mindedness, not only his own double heart. He's actually talking about the people themselves. We may see another example of this in verse 158, Psalm 119, 158. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. 
He says, I behold the treacherous and I loathe them. He sees treacherous people and he loathes them. He hates them because they do not keep your word. Then in 163, the thoughts or the actions. He says in verse 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. He hates falsehood, but he also hates false people. It's both. The two go together. The common notion that's out there in Christianity, in common Christianity, people say, we ought to hate sin, but love the sinner. Or love the sinner and hate the sin. People say that. There is an element of truth in it. Surely we ought to hate sin. But what it does is it distances the sinner from his own sin so that we go overboard in smothering love all over the sinner with the hopes that he'll reject his sin. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not believe that. In fact, there are harsh and stern things that need to be said to the sinner so that he rejects his sin. And one of the ways in which we convey that is expressing hatred both towards their actions but also to their person so that they understand how reprehensible their sin is before God and that they themselves are going to experience the punishment of God for what they have done. It's not that God's just going to throw all sin into hell. No, He will throw sinners into hell because they cling on to their sin. This is the reality. The Bible teaches that we ought to hate those who are double-minded. Jesus taught us the same. Jesus taught us the same. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, After describing our love of, of money and treasures, He says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot have two masters. One will rule over you. And there is a love-hate relationship. He says, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. If we are loving mammon, possessions, material possessions and wealth, we actually hate God. Whether we know it and whether we admit it, we actually hate God if we love our material possessions. That's what Jesus declares right here. We hate God if we love our material possessions. But also, Jesus taught us to hate people. He taught us to hate people. Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, he says, 14, 25. Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple because he has not distanced himself from the sin of the people around him, and he has not distanced himself from his own sin. Notice right there it said in verse 25, even his own life. He must hate who he is when he considers who he is with his sin. He must even hate father and mother, brother and sister, and even wife, whoever it may be, when they are associated with their sin. He must not associate with them. He must not agree with them. He must not excuse their sin. He must not say, no, no, you can be a Christian and practice this or that sin at the same time. It's okay. The Bible is, is loving. The Bible is gracious. The Bible is merciful. And God will take care of it in the end. You can't excuse it. You have to actually hate it and reject it. Now, hate, hatred towards father, mother, brother, sister, and even one's own life does not mean you do harm to the person. It does not mean that at all. It means you reject the person in the way that the Bible wants you to reject the person. 
That is, you will not follow their advice. You will not follow their human wisdom. You will not practice what they practice. And you will tell them you will not do so. Just as you, when in, when in your conversion, you reject your own self, don't you? You reject your own self in your conversion. You hate your own life in order to become a disciple of Christ. Because now you know your life is not your own. You're not going to pursue sin anymore. You're going to pursue the righteousness of Christ. You're going to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. Dedicated to Christ. Denying yourself and taking up your cross daily to follow Christ. That's what Jesus meant. In the same way, we must hate the people and the circumstances and the actions all around us when they are contrary to the Word of God. He describes, David does... That these people are double-minded. Double-minded. In James, James twice, in James chapter 1, he says that we ought not to be a double-minded man, unstable in all our ways. James 1.8. Anyone who prays to God, anyone who considers himself a believer and wants God's assistance must not be a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He cannot be half-heartedly a Christian. He has to be wholeheartedly a Christian. He should not half-heartedly pray. He should wholeheartedly pray. James 4.8, he says the same. We'll actually begin in verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. James is hating the double-minded here. He's hating them in the sense that he is calling on them to humble themselves and submit to God. Humble themselves by rejecting their sin and repent and turn to God. When they turn to God, then they will turn their foolish and worldly laughter into mourning and their foolish and earthly joy to gloom when they turn to God. They're going to repent, be remorseful of their sin, reject it, and follow the Lord. This is the sense in which David and James and Jesus teach us to hate. To hate the double-minded. Not only the double-minded people, but first it must begin with us. We must not be double-minded and they must not be double-minded. We must be resolute, completely resolved to do the will of God. 1 Kings 1.18, Elijah the prophet had to deal with people who were double-minded. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah had a contest. A contest of the false prophets and their idols with the Lord and himself. Elijah and the Lord against all the false prophets... And their idols. And he calls on them, he says, in verse 21, 18, 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. The people did not answer him a word because they were afraid. They were double-minded. They were trying to say, we can be the people of God, we can worship the Lord, and we can worship these other gods at the same time. We can do both. We don't have to be exclusively worshiping the Lord. We don't have to reject these other idols because they might benefit us. And in fact, the people who worship them might benefit us. We'll have more friends. We'll have more wealth. They will ask us over to their house. They might hire us in their businesses. I can't reject all of them. No, I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to worship Christ. But I'll also worship in their way. And also I'll, I'll do what they say. I'll do both. This is what the Bible means that God hates. And we ought to hate people who are double-minded. Because what we're doing is we are compromising the truth of the gospel. We're compromising Christ when we are not resolved to follow Christ wholeheartedly. If we're not doing that wholeheartedly, then we sin. We must hate, but love the law of God. We must love the law of God. You see, the people who are double-minded do not love the Word of God. They do not love the Word of God. If they knew 
what the Word of God said, and they knew that it was good and right and true from heaven. They would love it, and it wouldn't matter. They would not be double-minded. They would know this is true, and they would say, let God be found true, though every man a liar, Romans 3, 4. Or they would say, according to Psalm 119, verse 128, Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. I know this is your word. You have changed my heart. I'm a new man now, and I want your word. I hunger and thirst for the word of righteousness. I want to do whatever is in the Bible. Whether I like it or not, whether I understand it or not, whether I, it's agreeable when I first read it or not, I want to understand it. I want to comprehend it correctly, and then I want to obey it with all that I have. Loving the Lord with all my heart, soul, and might, and my neighbor as myself. That's the kind of determination that we ought to have if we love God, and if we love His law. If we love Him, this is the way we will be. 1 John 4, 19 tells us, we love because He first loved us. If we truly have the love of God inside of us, if He is truly our Lord, if we truly belong to Him, if we have been forgiven of our sins, we will love Him in return. We are commanded to, to do so with our whole being, but we will show that by loving what He says, by loving His laws, and not considering His laws burdensome. For the Scripture says in 1 John 5, for His commandments are not burdensome. Instead, we will love. We will love to do whatever He wants us to do. Verse 114, He continues to describe what He does. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. To wait for or to hope in God's word. This is what He does. He has resolved completely to take God as His refuge. To, to take God as his protector, his shield. He is a refuge and a shield to David. This is who God is. He knows that his life is in the hand of God. He knows that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he is greater than all. And no one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father... We are one. This is what David is declaring here. He knows that his soul was in jeopardy. His soul was lost. His soul was on the way to destruction. But now his soul is in the hand of God. God is his hiding place. God is his shield. And no one will be able to take them out of the hand of God. He knows this. And this is what gives him hope. It gives him peace. It gives him assurance. This is why he says, I wait for your word. I hope in your word. He has faith in what the Bible says is true. He has faith and conviction on what the Bible says is what he ought to believe, how he ought to think, how he lives his life, what he says to people, how he conducts his personal life, everything. He hopes in and waits for the Bible, the word of God to be fulfilled. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. In that passage, there he reiterates this fact, that when we have true faith, we put our hope in God, in the Word of God, and in the things of God, and not in the world. We don't want anything to do with the world. We want to live in conformity with the Holy Word of God. 115. In contrast, he says, Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Depart from me. Away. Go away. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. He wants to observe the commandments of God, his God, away from the evildoers. And he's telling the evildoers to go away. Where have we heard that before? We don't hear this today. In fact, we hear, no, no, no. We have to be with the unbelievers. We need to be with the evildoers. We need to be with the ones who will tempt us to sin because we need to convert them. We need to evangelize them. Well, if they are willing to listen, okay. 
But when they are practicing their sin, it's not okay. That's what he means here. When they're practicing their sin, they refuse to give up their sin, and they are influencing us, they're dragging us down, they're tying our hands behind our back, they're making us behave like they behave, speak like they speak, go where they go, and do evil. Then he says, no. He's resolved. He says, depart from me, evildoers. He's ready to give them up. He's ready to say, I, I don't need to be your friends anymore. I don't need to be around you anymore. And I don't want to be around you anymore. I'm a new man. I'm a different person. Christ has saved me from my sins. I'm going to follow him. And it's not because I think I'm better than you because I'm saved by grace. Not because of something good in me, but because of God's grace bestowed on me. I say this because I don't want to practice sin anymore. I love my Lord. I love my Holy Lord. And I want to follow Him faithfully. I want to follow Him. So it's necessary to separate from evildoers. That I may observe the commandments of my God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For by whatever man sows, this he will also reap. Whatever he sows, this he will also reap. And there's no escape from practicing sin. And first, that was Galatians 6, 7. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. You think that you can play with sin? You can compromise? That, oh, okay, those people over there, they're going out to get drunk and I'm not going to get drunk. I'll be able to control myself and I'll be able to do this and that. No, no, no. Bible says no. If they're going out to do that, then you better watch it. You might fall into the same sin that they practice when you are around them. Whether it's drunkenness or anything else, you could do the very same thing. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 warns us of this truth. 1 Corinthians 10, after describing the many sins of the people in the wilderness under Moses, centuries before, about 14 to 1500 years before the time of the Corinthians, who lived in a different period, who lived in a different part of the world, in a different culture, who spoke a different language, after they practiced their sins in the wilderness, he's telling the Corinthians who are urbanites, who live in cities, who have a Greek culture. He tells them, the same sins of the past, the Jewish people, you, Greek people, Jews and Gentiles, you Greek people, you could do the same thing. The human condition is the same. He says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. He says, the scriptures record all of these temptations and all of these wicked actions of the people of the past as examples for us, so that we don't do the same thing. And we not have pride puff up within us so that we say, oh no, I would never do that. I could never, if I were in that same circumstance, I would never have worshipped idols. I would never have practiced gluttony. I would never have danced before the, the idols and all the incense. I would have never done that. I would never have gotten drunk. No, no, no I, would never, I would never have committed sexual immorality. I would never have done that. No, he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And, verse 13, that the temptations that people face are common. It goes on everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. Those same temptations, male, female, whatever, is common to man. So don't let pride be inflated in your heart and you think, Oh, I can handle it. I can be around evil people and I'll withstand. No. It won't happen. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. He continues, David continues, to explain how he maintains this separation. What is it that sustains him 
and maintains him in the separation. And actually, the two verses go together, 116 and 117. He says, Sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. In these two verses, his prayer is for God to sustain him that he may live, and then uphold him that he might be safe. The Word of God is what he needs. The Word of God is what gives him life, and the Word of God is what keeps him safe. Safe from sin, safe from the peril and the perdition that sin produces. The Word of God is what he needs. He says it will keep him alive and it will keep him safe. As well, he wants to have regard for God's statutes continually. Continually, he wants to have regard, he wants to esteem, he wants to know and obey the statutes of God, the words of God. He doesn't want to be willy-nilly. He doesn't want to be a casual Christian. He doesn't want an easy and a breezy Christianity. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to have one foot in the door of the church and one foot outside in the world. He doesn't want to be half-hearted and double-minded. He wants to have this regard continually. Continually. That means every moment of the day and until he meets Christ face to face. He wants to have this mindset continually. This is why the scripture says that we ought to pray without ceasing. Pray at all times in the Holy Spirit. The Bible says this because when we pray, we're thinking upon God. We're thinking upon the Word of God, what we know to be true. We pray all the time and we read the Bible all the time. Why? So that we might have regard for God's statutes continually. This is how God sustains us. This is how God upholds us. This is how God gives us life. He keeps us safe. He keeps us safe from the tragedies and the, the temptations of the world that can consume us and overtake us. We need this all the time. Where is it, though? Where, where can you find the Christian who will run to the Bible? The average person says he's Christian, but does the average Christian who professes Christ delight in the Bible continually? And does he believe that the Bible is what's going to sustain and uphold him? Does he believe that the Bible is going to give him life? That the Bible will give him safety? The Bible will give him wisdom and everything he needs to know about the, his mind, his heart, his aspirations, his ambitions, everything he wants to do in life, everything he wants for himself, for his family, for his friends, whatever he wants to pursue. Does he do that? Rare is it. Rare is it that the person who claims the name of Christ actually loves the Word of Christ. How can one claim Christ, claim to know Christ, but actually have no heart, no desire, no hunger and thirst for the Word of Righteousness, the Word of Christ? It can't happen. It's, not, it's impossible. The Word of Christ is what regenerates us by the Spirit. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce a child of God. This Word is what is in, in us to regenerate us, and then it continues to sustain us. It continues to uphold us. It continues to keep us safe. It continues to give us life. It is a Word of life. It is your life, Moses says in Deuteronomy 32. This Word. If you don't have this Word, you have no life. We, we would be aimless people we would be going off the beaten path constantly if we did not have this word. David knows this, and that's why he says he wants to have regard for it continually. Yet, if he does so continually, verse 116 says, he does not want to be ashamed of his hope. He doesn't want to have any shame associated with this faithfulness this continual desire for the Word of God, he does not want any shame because he hopes in God. He's asking God to protect him because there are people around who don't do this. 
Everybody around, everybody thinks of their own life. They, they think of their own passions and pursuits. They think of whatever will please them, whatever will satisfy them, whether it's their pleasures, whether it's their pride, whether it's their desire for people to please them and praise them. They want a multitude of people to mention their name and to say how great they are. They build buildings. For, it, they donate money for buildings that are millions upon millions of dollars so that they can have their name plastered on it. This, this is the kind of thing that people do. But here he says, do not let me be ashamed of my hope. I don't care about those things. I just want to be focused on you. This is my hope. And I don't, I don't want anybody to molest me, anybody to mock me. I don't want any of that. I don't care about any of that. I want to have confidence. And I want you to praise me. I want you to say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. I want you to be pleased with me. I don't want you to be ashamed of me. I want what you want. I don't want what they want. The faithful Christian who does so until the end does so so that he is not ashamed or put to shame when Christ returns. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. He does not want to shrink away from Christ in shame at the coming of Christ. He wants to have confidence. He wants to have boldness. He wants Christ to say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. He doesn't care about the shame of the world. He's concerned about the shame of Christ. He doesn't want to be ashamed when Christ returns. That's all that's on his mind. He's not a people pleaser. He's a Christ pleaser. Verses 18 and 19. In verses 118 and 119, he now describes what God will do with the wicked. We note a distinction between the path of the righteous and now the path of the wicked. 118. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes. For their deceitfulness is falsehood or useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. In these two verses, we observe that he knows what God has determined to happen with all of the, those who wander from the commandments of God. All the wicked of the earth. Those who wander from the commandments of God... God rejects them. Those who are, are like dross, they're not like the pure silver. These wicked people, God will remove. Just as the, the smelter or the, the assayer of metals, he is seeking to separate the impurities, the dross from the pure metals. We see that happen. God does that spiritually. And what he does is he separates the righteous from the wicked. So that on the day of judgment, there is complete rejection of the wicked because they wandered from God's commandments. They didn't desire to do any of God's commandments. They didn't walk on the straight path. And they were worthless dross. They were worthless like chaff that is blown away in the wind. They were worthless like straw and stubble that needs to be burned up and put away because it has no purpose. It has no use. This is what God does. He has determined, and we know, that he has determined this before the foundation of the, wor the world. He created hell to be populated by wicked people and the demons. He did not create it as an afterthought. He did not create it as a plan B. He did not create it because he was surprised at the condition of mankind after he created man. No, he created it in order to be inhabited. And this is the reality that the wicked must understand. And we who preach the gospel must preach to them so that they understand it in this way. Notice, it says, in Matthew 25, 41, gentle Jesus says, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire 
which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It has been prepared. And by this he means been prepared before the foundation of the world for the devil, his angels, and all of the accursed ones to join in with them. The accursed ones are the wicked that David means in Psalm 119. These same people will go to a place prepared for them. If this is the outcome, if that is the eternal destiny of the wicked people, wouldn't a wise person, wouldn't a person who truly understands the value of his own life, wouldn't he want to make sure that he's not in that group of the wicked or the goats, the sons of darkness, those who are following the devil? Wouldn't he want to make sure, if he loves his own soul, wouldn't he want to make sure that he is a part of the righteous, that he is a part of the people of God, the sheep, those who are redeemed? Wouldn't he want to make sure? But few people do. Few people make sure that they belong to Christ. In fact, most people think it's worthless and useless to think about that thought. They don't care about their own souls enough to consider what happens to them upon death. They don't consider. They barely give it a thought. What will happen to me when I die? And then when they do give it a thought, they rashly, they rashly and irrationally conclude, well, all roads lead to Rome. There's, there's no one single way. You cannot say authoritatively that, and dogmatically that your way is the only way, they say. So they invent many, many paths to reach heaven, whatever heaven they imagine it to be. They say, there's many ways to get there. You don't need to take this so seriously. The Bible isn't the authoritative and dogmatic word of God sent from heaven. No, no. You think that way, but the other religion thinks the other way, and it doesn't necessarily happen that way. We all get there one way or another. That's not true. We know that that's not true. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus believed. Jesus himself believed. And if he is a good teacher, if he's a righteous teacher, if he's a sinless teacher, if he's a knowledgeable teacher, then either Jesus is right or he's wrong. And we all must decide. Is Jesus right or is Jesus wrong? And if we consider that Jesus is the only way and we believe in the truth, then we truly have delivered ourselves from this punishment and this darkness, this rejection of God and removal of God, when one day, on the day of judgment, He will make this great separation. In this case, notice David calls... The things that the wicked do, he calls it deceitfulness, verse 118. Deceitfulness, falsehood, or the translation may be useless. It's deceit and falsehood, and it's useless. It's worthless. How is a lie valuable in the true sense? A lie is not valuable. It's worthless, and it is falsehood. It's deceit. A lie is a lie only to a limited advantage. A, a lie is not to the advantage of everyone when the lie is announced, when the deceit is announced. So in this case, he's saying that this deceitfulness is useless or falsehood because how can anybody convince himself that a lie is good and that everything will just be fine with him? Do we do, we do this when we drive our cars? Do we convince ourselves that we can drive 120 miles an hour? We can drive 120 miles an hour on a, in a 45 lane and everything will be just fine? It doesn't matter what people say. I'm not going to pay attention to the facts. I'm not going to pay attention to the realities. Do we do that? No. We would have to be insane to do that. We would have to be insane. Only a person who convinces himself of the... Uh, the, the irreal, the unreal things 
Only that kind of person would go straight ahead and drive 120 miles an hour in a 45 lane. But somebody who's got some rationality, somebody who has his sobriety and his senses, that person will say, okay, if it says 45, I better not go faster than that because if I go faster than that, if I go the 120 I want to go, it's going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to my death. It's going to lead to eternal punishment. This is what Jesus meant when Jesus told us to consider the outcome of our life. He says in Matthew 16, 24, to consider the truth and not the deceit. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For who wishes... For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man be given in exchange for his soul? See, an irrational, insane man will say, I, I've, all, I've got it all figured out. It's going to be okay. I can drive 120 miles an hour because the 120 miles an hour is comparable to inheriting the whole world. I'm going to inherit all the possessions, all the fame, and all the fun of the world. I'm going to inherit everything. I'm going to pursue that and it'll be just fine for my 70 or 80 years of life. It'll be just fine. And the world to come doesn't matter. The world to come that lasts for eternity doesn't matter. This is the kind of deceit people believe. They don't really engage in the proper rational thought. What will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? They don't think that way. David, on the other hand, he knows that their deceitfulness is falsehood. It's useless. It will, will not help them at all. And instead, verse 119... Therefore, I love your testimonies. In response to that, when he contemplates that, notice he loves the testimonies of God. He loves the testimonies of God. He wants to love God and not the wicked. He does not want to pursue what they pursue. David often, we know that David often does this in the Psalms. He's doing it right here. What does he do to motivate him? In his mind, he is constantly contrasting his life with the life of others. Not in pride, but in terms of distinction between truth and falsehood, righteousness and wickedness, so that he is constantly reminded that he needs to be on the path of righteousness, that he needs to love God and to love the testimonies of God. He reminds him of the way he used to be, he reminds himself of the way he used to be. He reminds himself of the way the people are all around him so that he's reminded that there is a clear distinction, a clear contrast. He's going to follow and love the ways of God. That's what he just did here in verses 118 and 19. I see what's happening all around me, but it's a reminder to me to walk on the straight path and not to move to the right or to the left. I'm not going to wander. I will follow the ways of God. I will love to do so. Finally, 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. My flesh. He speaks here of his body being impacted by his mind, his thoughts. When he contemplates God and God's judgments, it causes him to tremble. His body trembles. He's not saying this because of any wrong notion. He's saying that whatever's on the inside has impacted me on the outside, just as we know that David cries at times, he laughs at other times, he's, he's happy and he dances, because that which is on the inside manifests itself on the outside. In the same way, when he contemplates God and his judgments, it causes him 
tremble, his body to tremble. He shudders, he shakes like an earthquake when he considers God. He is saying this in faith. He's saying this in truth. He's saying this in righteousness. He is not declaring that he's sinning, that he's lacking faith. He's not saying that. He's saying this as a good thing and one to be modeled. This is to be modeled. Not just David, but for all of us. He says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. He trembles because he's afraid of the judgments of God, and he fears God. This is good, and this is right. Many people misunderstand this. They say, we ought to have reverence for God, but we ought never to be afraid of God. We ought never to fear God. We should just have reverence. However, that concept is unbiblical. In the Bible, we ought to certainly have reverence and awe of God. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 describes this in verses 18 to 29. That we ought to have reverence and awe for God. But biblically speaking, that reverence and awe includes fear, being afraid, trembling, and knowing the judgments of God. It includes that. It's not exclusive of it. Even in Hebrews 12, he ends by saying in 12.29, For our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. If God is a consuming fire, we ought not be any kind of rabble or rubble that's thrown into that fire. We instead ought to be righteous and we ought to be the metal, the gold metal or the silver that's placed into the fire. That's what we ought to be because our God is a consuming fire. You see, in the Bible, it is the love of God that produces, love of God towards us that produces fear of God towards God and love towards God. This is the sequence of events, biblically speaking. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. It's impossible for us to love God in truth unless God first loves us. So the sequence has to be God first loves us. But when He loves us, how does He manifest that love? He regenerates us. He takes our closed heart and makes it open. We who were dead, He makes us alive. So he changes us that way. That's how his love or mercy and grace are initiated, are manifested. He does that first. That has to be the first cause. But once he does that, once our heart hears that word of God, the gospel, what is the first response? When we hear that Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, and if we do not repent of our sins, we will be thrown into hell. What does God produce in us? He produces fear. And isn't that what Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10 say? It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. He produces fear in us when we hear that gospel. He produced the fear in us because it was preceded by His love toward us. He produced that fear in us. And this is the fear that David is speaking of. And then that fear of God also relates to and produces love toward God. We love because He first loved us. We love God because we know He taught us to fear Him. And He taught us the difference between the truth and the falsehood. He taught us the difference between light and darkness. And we have come to love the light. We don't want the darkness anymore because of the fear of God. We want the light. We want the love. We want the true knowledge. This is what we want. Now that we know God, we begin to love God in this way. Therefore, the love that God showers on us produces fear towards God, which is what David means here in Psalm 119, 120. Produces his fear toward God and love toward God and the Word of God. A few examples from the New Testament that shows the same trembling as a virtue. 
the same trembling as a virtue. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the same chapter, someone who did so in this specific action is mentioned in verse 15. 2 Corinthians 7, 15. He says, And his affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Titus had gone to minister to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians had a right attitude towards Titus and what he represented and why he came there. And he commends them because he says, You Corinthians received him with fear and trembling. That's a virtue. It was a good thing that they did. And he rejoices in that. The apostle rejoices that the Corinthians did so. And one more place is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. So then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He calls on the Philippians to work out their salvation. That means manifest it, display it, produce the fruit of salvation. Not work for your salvation, but produce the fruit of salvation with fear and trembling. And God will work in you to produce those things. Just as He did in David, just as He did in the Corinthians, He's now calling on the Philippians to do the same, and He will do so for us. And this is good. We need this. This is our means. This is our antidote. This is the way to prevent and to preempt us from falling into sin. We have the fear and trembling of God within us so that we get away, we run away. We completely jettison any thought of sin and any circumstance of sin because we fear God. Let's be the same way. David, he loved God and he loved the Word of God and he feared God and he hated the world, the flesh, and the devil. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Father in heaven, we know that we are weak and frail creatures. But we know also that your Spirit dwells within us. And your Spirit who raised Christ up from the dead performs miracles. He changed us from darkness to light. He changed our hearts from stony to tender. And Lord, we know that he dwells in us to continue to transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. Grant that to us. Give us strength day by day and give us greater conviction, greater hope, greater patience, greater perseverance in our Christian life. In the name of Christ, amen.